All right, what's cracking, guys? So today I'm sitting down with Will Starks, and we're going to be talking all about weight management and water cuts for competition. Now, this is something that uh, I get questions on, you know, semi-frequently, and I have my own opinions on this, but this definitely isn't something that I really specialize in because I usually tend to recommend athletes not cut a whole lot of weight. Now, that's neither right or wrong. That's just my personal preference. So I wanted to bring someone in who has a lot more experience in this and is very, very knowledgeable and uh, was actually recommended to me by Dr. Mike, Dr. Mike Isertel, who's been on the podcast before. So Will, thanks so much for jumping on, man. It's great to have you here. Uh, thank you for having me on. Looking forward to hopefully elaborating on some valuable details regarding water weight cutting for sports, why they can be helpful, and then some possible risks or some definite risks, but then some possible strategies to minimize or decrease the likelihood that uh, you as an athlete or a coach wind up in a really bad position prior to competition. Yeah. No, hundred percent. And it's something that I don't think a lot of people really, really talk about. Like, People say like, oh yeah, I'm doing a water cut or I'm doing this, but I don't think they really understand some of the intricacies involved with properly dieting down and properly doing some of these strategies to, to perform really well in a meet. Um, so can you give a little bit of a background for yourself and kind of how you got, I guess, around with, with RP, um, just for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with who you are? I say my name is Will Starks. I am 28 years old and uh, my sports science and martial started so I grew up fascinated with MMA. I was a big fan of George St. Pierre growing up because he kind of shared a similar story with being bullied and, you know, wanting to become stronger. Uh, but the thing that drew me most to him was his scientific approach to the sport. He, uh, he looked the part and that I think that was a, a byproduct of how he prepared for competition. He was doing strength and conditioning. Uh, he, he was eating healthy, relatively healthy year round. Uh, and he took a very tactical approach to MMA uh, in preparation for each of his individual opponents. So I uh, actually, my, my first run in with the principles of water weight cutting were during senior year. And I actually uh, had this teacher, Dr. Reed, who gave us an assignment to do a presentation on something we found interesting. And I found an old article actually by uh, Dr. John Berardi with Precision Nutrition. Uh, just kind of, I'm, I'm not sure who the, who the guy was that was writing it, but he basically highlighted his water weight cutting experience. And when I looked at it, it, it made complete sense to me. Uh, and again, I was, I was enthralled by the process and was going on and on about all the variables you manipulate to make sure you could be on weight for the day of weigh-ins and then reconstitute and show up heavier and prime for competition. So that, that's, that kind of steered me in the direction of studying exercise physiology, going into university, uh, an experience I initially bombed, uh, but that's also where I ended up meeting Dr. Mike Isretel. So I uh, walked on to the wrestling team at University of Central Missouri in Warrensburg, Missouri, after only one year of wrestling, actually, in high school. Uh, and there I met Jared Feather, one of our uh, RPs I had, uh, bodybuilding and contest prep coaches, uh, so we became friends and he was really, you know, at the time he was really involved in the campus exercise physiology community. Uh, and so he actually helped catch me up to speed on a lot of training. What wasn't even, uh, at the time I wasn't even aware it existed. Um, so then when I ended up moving back home for a period of time around 2013, 2014, 
uh, and I, I kind of refocused on yes, or, or I focused and dialed in on MMA training. Uh, Dr. Mike Isertel actually started teaching at UCM, so that's where uh, that's where my first experience of running with him was. Jared was bragging about this new, really smart Russian Jewish guy who was jacked, super strong. It was in the weight room shouting and whatnot. And uh, he told me I had to come up and meet him and just talk to him. So uh, I met Mike in 2014 at UCM through Jared. And, uh, you know, we, we, we kind of we clicked initially. You know, he, he was one of the first he was one of the first professors or people in general that really uh, had enough depth of knowledge with sports science that he could break it down. He, he could he could break it down to their individual principles or um, or components so that not only could I under not only could I understand it, but I found I, I found the desire to delve deeper, right? You know, and, and kind of experiment and, and take those principles and create my own practices. So he really inspired. Uh, you know, a lot of my desire to pursue higher education, you know, j just beyond, you know, getting a bachelor's or, you know, getting a personal training certification and then settling on, you know, like working at your local YMCA. Um, so then you know, fast forward from 2014 and on, I, I can training MMA. And in 2015, I actually made the amateur uh, national team. Uh, so this is through the United States Mixed Martial Arts Federation. Uh, and after winning nationals, I qualified for the International Mixed Martial Arts Federation World Tournament, and that was held in Vegas. And so uh, the IMMAF, uh, so the, the acronym or the abbreviation for that is uh, they started sanctioning MMA around the world in countries that weren't really exposed to MMA at the time. Uh, They're trying to give the amateur MMA scene a look that was easily distinguishable from the professional scene. Uh, they, they wanted a, a professional look still, but they wanted it to look safe and appealing so that eventually it could be pushed or moved into the Olympic games. And I think that's still a goal they're pursuing right now. So I won worlds in 2015, and then I actually went for a second run in 2016 and was successful as well before turning pro uh, the following year. And then, you know, we, we, we get into a, a long spiral up and then straight down to rock bottom, you know, before landing, you know, back here on this podcast. But that is the longer, or I say like the, the longer drawn out version of how I met Mike and got involved with RP. Um, around 2019, I started interning for him. We got reconnected and um, he offered the opportunity and I uh, launched some more online coaching. And that, that, that's also when I, I, was, I was getting more heavily involved in competing again for myself and setting some, pro, uh, some professional goals uh, for the medium and long term. And, uh, you know, now here I am content, uh, currently the director of sport performance at a local gym here in my hometown. Uh, I'm training for the facility as well. And then uh, I'm a licensed massage therapist and, you know, still, still, still continuing with academia as well, pushing uh, for cognition and neuroscience in the long term. That's awesome, man. So to dive right into it, um, I guess just to sort of like set the stage, can you just sort of broadly describe some of the various strategies that are utilized and implemented in weight cutting? So everything from different dieting strategies to the water cut to saunas or whatever else is, is used. Just so people kind of have yeah. like a reference. Yeah, I, th I think most 
Uh, unfortunately, most people, uh, so, so when they hear weight cutting, they just think, you know, they think extreme dieting, but I, I don't think they think about it within the context of sport, like sport only, right? You know, like you, you talk to the, the general or a layman, uh, you know, uh, individual and they're, they're just thinking, okay, you're going to crash diet, you know, in essence, you know, this is the same thing I do when I'm, you know, doing some sort of, you know, 90 day challenge to lose, you know, lose a bunch of weight. But uh, there are three areas that are primarily focused on manipulating with a water weight cut. Uh, so you're going to go through one of the strategies involves diet, right? So you're, you're adjusting carbohydrates and sodium. Uh, so, so with those for, for like car with carbohydrates for every gram of carbohydrate you ingest, you're going to retain roughly three to four grams of fluid with that. And then with sodium, uh, for every, you know, roughly, let's say 400, this is, this is more anecdotal. Um, I'm loosely referencing some of, uh, Dr. Derek Wilcox's, um, pre presentation points on this, but, uh, around 400 milligrams of sodium, you know, will retain upward of, you know, around two two pounds of, uh, two pounds of body weight. And so that, that, that's give or take, you know, it's obviously athlete size, you know, athlete size dependent and their, their activity, you know, depending on how much they, you know, how much they sweat and how, uh, you know, how, how, how conditioned they are, but, um, you know, then you have the hormone factor as well. So with, with hormones, sodium included, uh, sodium and electrolytes included in this, you'll have the water portion as well. So for the first three days, you are water loading, right? So you're trying to push your body in the flushing direction, right? So you want to get, um, you know, if it, like you have like aldosterone and antidiuretic hormone, um, you know, are, are, are the chief hormones that are involved in water retention and sodium retention. And so once you begin the loading process and you accompany sodium with that as well, uh, your body goes into a flushing mode where you're excreting water. There, there's an initial weight gain period. Uh, and then as you get closer to the fight, instead of uh, in a mild, mild caveat here, uh, most people, including myself in the past, made, make, make the mistake of like trying to taper, uh, you know, taper off your water intake. Uh, and it's actually, it's actually a mistake just because hormones end up shifting relatively quickly following changes in, you know, fluid and electrolyte intake. So tapering off your water intake doesn't set you up for ex, uh, excreting the amount of fluids that would be ideal for making, uh, for making the weight cut in the last 24 hours. So you'll load up on water, uh, you know, and sodium for the first three days or so. And then during the last one or two days and 24 hours, you'll pretty much abruptly cut them off. Right. So then you're still in an excreting, you're still in a flushing mode. And then you can finish up with sauna or sweatsuit sessions. And, uh, you know, like I gotta say, say, um, you know, any, any type of supplements that, that you would, um, so, so supplements that you, that you'd be using to, uh, help, help with flushing water at that point. But, uh, that's, that, that, that's not necessarily something I would recommend, I would, I prefer when I'm working with athletes or even with myself to make sure that training is set up in a way where we can deplete glycogen early enough paired with the decrease in carbohydrates and the flushing that, uh, that we don't necessarily have to rely on supplement use, you know, like that we don't have to rely on diuretic use 
that later on because there are there 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 are some posed the reconstitution part so uh after you make weight ideally you're not dehydrated long like i said the the, the last portion is within the, um, the last portion is during the 24-hour period uh, and that way you're not dehydrated excessively long and then you end up recarb re uh recarbing back up uh rehydrating and with that with that component you end up um uh, you know you're looking for like moderate protein high carbohydrate and low fat meals early on. Uh, and then you also follow, following that, you end up returning back to a roughly normal eating schedule uh, where you're still focused on capping off the carbohydrates lost during the glycogen uh, repleting process. And then ba basically fin finish, uh, finishing up with whatever smaller details necessary prior to stepping into the cage. Mm -hmm. And so as far as like, obviously it's, it's a little bit different in MMA and boxing and things like that, but uh, in powerlifting, you have sometimes like a two hour win or a 24 hour win. So obviously there's going to be different mm -hmm. strategies depending on which one you're using because you don't necessarily have the same window post win to, you know, refuel, rehydrate, all that stuff. So when you are thinking about you know, improving your, your, your glycogen stores, recarbing up when you're thinking about improving your hydration status, what are some of the things that you really need to think about? Because a lot of the times people will focus a lot on water, which obviously is very important, but there's so many other aspects to hydration status and balance than just water. So can you kind of touch on that? Yeah. So I said with the, with the first component, when you're looking to start, like when you want to excrete water, depleting glycogen is going to be crucial right so dropping carbs during that initial like so so what weigh-ins typically have uh the water weight cut process is typically like a five to six six day process so when you drop carbohydrates uh that makes you less prone to holding on to water um there is potential for using potassium as well since it seems to be like a, I say, same potassium being a sodium antagonist, you know, and helping to expel water. Uh, in that case, there, there, there's some potential there, although I don't know, I don't even have any like literature citations for that because I know manipulating sodium and electrolytes uh, or sodium potassium rather are, are potentially dangerous. And so I don't know if there are any individuals or researchers that are willing or able to put themselves or study subjects you know, in, in harm's way to see what the, you know, what the potential for water weight cutting for sport are in that manner. But there, there's potential there with potassium. Um, but one of the biggest things I found to help during the week of the wake, uh, during the week of the weight cut outside of water, uh, carbohydrates and electrolyte manipulation is also your training strategies. And so obviously during, during the water weight cut, you're, you're still going to be training as you peak for competition. There's a, so like the final peaking block, uh, of, of a training phase, you know, instead of a, tr a traditional accumulation deload paradigm where you're, you know, maybe we're starting, you know, we start low and then climb high before deloading at the very end, we'll start roughly higher and then taper down lower, uh, you know, to just to make sure that preparedness shoots through the roof as fatigue drops uh, even more than it would in a, tr in a traditional sense. 
And so during that week, though, you can capitalize on some carb depletion style workouts where um, so, so you don't want to tax your athletes tremendously, but we'll go into uh, we call it like a lactic aerobic style workouts. And so the final week of, of training for combat athletes, you're obviously you're not going to be sparring tremendously hard. Uh, you're not going to be putting your athletes at risk of, you know, twisting or tearing ligaments, uh, you know, or, or, or bruising themselves more than necessary because they already know how to fight. And so what you can do is still have them go through their typical dynamic warm-up. Uh, you can have them go through drills and situationals. Uh, and that's actually the week where I would add in some, some like fun sports specific, uh, sports specific style conditioning um, w- within certain time constraints so that it, it, you, you end up working on conditioning fast switch motor, uh, you know, fast switch motor fibers, uh, and you're still depleting glycogen as well, which helps to support the low carb, uh, and the, the uh, low, lower carb fluid excretion process, uh, and, and then it, but w- without overly fatiguing the athletes during that final week. So that that's that that's something I, I found found really helpful as well. And so, what would that look like for strength athletes? Because the <clears throat> this podcast is predominantly listened to by you know other coaches or powerlifters, strongmen, people who want to get big and jacked, not necessarily like MMA fighters. So so how would that how would that change? Like, I definitely understand kind of the underpinnings of what you're talking about, but do you have any specifics or not necessarily specific, but maybe some guidelines in terms of, you know, peaking for the event? Cause obviously we're going to see a reduction in volume intensity is still going to stay relatively high, but kind of be more in the moderate zone. So how, how might that impact um, the, the diet composition and then how might the diet composition impact training performance if we are somewhat depleted of, of glycogen and carbohydrates and things like that. So you're asking like, what, what will be the difference in trying to help with expo- uh, like uh, excreting water in a strength athlete versus a combat sport athlete where they're, they're, they're not, they're not doing the same. More, more from a training standpoint. Right. Cause I definitely understand what you're saying from like a skill component and doing more of those things to prime the athlete for, for the fight, but from a, mm-hmm. a powerlifting standpoint or a strength based a strength athlete standpoint, um, what would some of those training variables look like that you're going to augment? Because obviously we wouldn't need to necessarily be fully carved up because the intensity is moderate, but it's not crazy high volumes, pretty yeah. low. So you know, I don't suspect that it's going to have a huge impact, but what are some of those things that maybe you would do to, let's say, safeguard against that? Or, or would you even, is there even really a concern in your opinion? Like safeguarding against like keeping, keeping performance high during the weight yes. cut? Or? Yes, exactly. Gotcha. The maintaining uh, athletic ability. Yeah, no. So, I, okay. So I guess if you look at my example of com- like combat sport program design, where you know, and obviously, so we're running strength and conditioning and I'm using my hand gestures, but I know we don't have, uh, we're not going to have video coverage on this one, but you have strength and conditioning running on one end concurrently with sport training on the other end. Uh, and so the, the, the accumulation deload paradigm is going to work pretty similar. If you have, if you have someone running a good sport program as well, they will ramp their athletes training up. Uh, in in the practice room and then taper back down in the same manner that they would ramp things up uh, that they would ramp things up in the weight room and then taper down as well. But that that, that being that being said, if you, the the principle there 
is just being you want to maintain a high a moderate level of intensity just like you described with powerlifting training during that week um but slice volume you know like slice volume in half by roughly 50 percent or so um but as, as, as far as i mean as, as far as protecting you know protecting the performance of a powerlifter you know like dur during that week as, as long as long as they're focusing on those primary variables of staying within the constraints of their deload volume and intensity uh, pushing the water load, pushing the water load correctly, uh, early on, and then cutting water and sodium very late. And then using strategies like the sauna, you know, or different sweatsuits very, very late, uh, very late in the process. And then, and, and then reconstituting correctly, uh, following the weigh-ins, uh, that that's, uh, the, the principle there, I, I believe runs parallel, um, with a combat, with a combat athlete that it would a powerlifting athlete. Right. No, that makes sense. So as far as uh, weight cutting goes for a strength athlete, and obviously there's kind of like a, it's a bit of a spectrum, right? It's not like necessarily, okay, after 10 pounds, you're going to see degradation in performance, but you know, mm -hmm. for a power lifter, for a strong man, if they're trying to meet a certain weight class, um, what are some considerations that you would take into account working with an athlete to determine how much weight would be appropriate to cut before you would suspect that they would start seeing, you know, uh, eroded performance. So obviously it's going to change. So let's say something like, have you done a water cut before? How much weight are you looking to cut? Um, how experienced are you with dieting and adherence and things like that? So what are some of those considerations in addition to like, I don't know, body weight or some other things that you might look at? Yeah. So, I mean, you listed off some, uh, a couple of physiological and psychological components that go into successful weight cuts or into botching them. Uh, and, and so going through like a, an athlete history checklist on one end, it is like you had stated, have they cut weight in the past? Uh, an, another component is where are they in their, in, in their training prep? And not, not only like how many weeks out are they from their meet uh, or in this case, so I'm trying to like extrapolate my experience working with combat athletes into powerlifting. Uh, but again, the, the, the principles are going to, are going to run near, nearly the same here, but uh, you know, are they over, you know, like if, if they're eight weeks out from their meat, you know, are they overly fat ba based on where they could be uh, to, 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 to perform at their, you know, to perform optimally for, for the meat? What, what I mean by that is, would it be, would they be better off? Go, like, like if, if they're shooting for a pretty low weight class, you know, like, Hey, you know, coach, I want to come in and, you know, like, I, you know, I'm 40, you know, 40 or so pounds overweight, you know, right now and I'm eight weeks out, but this is the weight class I want to compete in, but I still want to pull, you know, whatever number I think is great. And you're like, eh, yeah, you know, like, you know, body fat, your body fat percentage and your lean body mass are not like for, for, for the duration of time we have leading up to the meet are not quite optimal for pushing enough fluid, uh, pushing enough fluids out to make weight versus like, uh, or, or rather, so the amount of time we would need to get you lean enough to get you within the safe zone for a 24 hour weight cut, uh, is not ideal for the weight class you're shooting for and the numbers you would like to pull or, or push, uh, you know, if, if, if you're pressing in this case. And so what, what I would look at there is that how can we organize the, their training on the macro level so we can make sure 
they have a like they, they have an ideal amount of lean tissue on them already so that most of their their weight cut can be water focused uh, and they're not at risk of losing lean tissue in route to the you know like in, in route to the water weight cutting process where they're where they're risking not only you know uh, like like central nervous system fatigue just from the peaking process and overreaching but now now they're also you know risking losing actual lean tissue and strength potential uh, leading up to the meet so that, that that's something on the like on, on the physiological level is is their body composition optimized for the weight class and their and and the numbers goals that they're that they're shooting for uh then on the psychological end it's you know how many times have they cut weight in the past uh you know what does their current schedule look like how is their sleep hygiene um you know, and, and then, and then just looking at, you know, overall, overall diet and uh, other external factors that, that could affect, uh, that, that could affect their stress levels. Yes. You mentioned yeah. a handful of things that I think are really important and often really, really undervalued. Um, the first one was body composition, especially because in powerlifting, it's almost like a kind of like a joke, you know, where it's like, Oh, we're big, but we're fat, you know? And yeah. it's, it's really to the detriment of, of their athletic performance, in my opinion, you know, like to beyond a certain point anyways, right. Where, you know, you see athletes and it's like, well, you don't really have any reason for being fat, you know, like <laughs> it's, it's not like, oh, I'm a powerlifter, so I can't get fit. It's like, dude, look at all the old school powerlifters and strongmen. They all look like bodybuilders, you know, it's, yeah. it's just kind of this new sort of mentality that doesn't prioritize nutrition. And some of those more difficult behavioral um, habits that that you know are a little little bit a little bit more challenging to kind of get uh, you know for the most part. So so that was one big one. And then the second thing you mentioned was stress, and then you mentioned sleep. Um, I'd love to go into those two things a little bit more because I really don't think people understand the impact that stress has as well as sleep. And obviously, they're kind of you know there's some overlap there on. Uh, even just things like water retention, right? Yeah, yeah, man. So that's uh, th that that is that is something big. So you know, increases in stress. You know, well, I mean, for for most people listening, they're they're already like that. They, they'll associate cortisol, you know, as as like the stress hormone, uh, which isn't inherently bad. But in this case, with increases in cortisol from increases in stress, uh, also increasing. Uh, anti-diuretic hormone, you know, that, that, that's, that's, that's just going to push more water, uh, you know, or, or it's, it's going to, it's, it's going to retain more water uh, and work against you in, in, in the long term for, for the weight cutting process. So that's, uh, you know, when you look on the recovery side, um, you know, like pro proper, you know, getting adequate sleep, um, priming like your, your, like your nutrient timing, uh, and also ensuring that you're managing fatigue throughout the training block or, or your training phases are all uh, you know, th th three important variables. When you look at the relationship between the body, uh, well, like relationship between the physical body and the mind as it pertains to stress, um, just following basic, like basic strategies, like get seven to nine hours of sleep roughly for the most part. Uh, don't jump straight into your training phase with you know, like, like, M, you know, like don't jump in the week one with MRV style training, you know, or, you know, if you are, you know, this, this is where like the auto regulation component of training comes into play as well, where, you know, maybe you start off week one, all right. And then week two, you know, because of variables slightly out of, outside of your control, you know, let's, let's say you're, 
let's say, yeah, you're a competitive power lifter, but you're also a husband and a father and you lose sleep or you get an argument with your, you know, with your partner or significant other, um, you know, you're running a business or, or you're just working and uh, stress goes high there. Uh, and then you're also training at like 5 a.m., you know, because you got to balance everything and you show up to the weight room and you can tell that you're not in you're not in the ideal condition to hit what uh, to hit the volume or even maybe the intensity that the spreadsheet calls for. Uh, but you're stubborn and you're going to hit it hard anyway, because <laughs> that, 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 that's just the way that it is. Um, you know, and, and then on top of that, let's say, let's say you're also one, one of those power lifters that just thinks, Hey, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be big because I'm big, be, you know, and, and, and so you, you use that as a, as, as a, as a reason or a crutch to ex- eat excessively unhealthy, you know? And so th- th- there's a balance there too. And I think RP does an amazing job at, highlighting um, some of the scientific principles of eating for health and body composition where, you know, obvi- obviously there, there's room, a savory you're following the 80, 20 rule, there, there's room to enjoy treats or some of your indulgences, but for the most part, 80%, 80% of your, you know, of your, of your food intake should be coming from uh, wholesome, minimally processed sources, uh, you know, and should, you know, like your, your, your eating or your diet should be, organized and periodized in a fashion to, again, optimize your body composition uh, in a specific direction so that you can peak. Yeah, no, 100%. And, and it's funny that you mentioned that too about the training because a, a lot of powerlifters, I think, fall into this trap of, oh, I don't feel like I'm beat to shit. I don't know if my training is hard enough. I think I'm, you know, I think I'm slacking. It's like, you shouldn't mm-hmm. feel broken all the time. Like, yes, you're going to go through periods where it's like, there's always going to be something where it's like, ah, oh, my hamstring is a little messed up or my back is tight or whatever. Right. And that, that's normal. But I generally think that you should feel pretty good, you know, and your, your sessions shouldn't necessarily completely destroy you because it's like, then you're just beating yourself into the ground and you're clearly not doing a good enough job of fatigue management because you're just overtraining, Right. And, and it's funny, actually, what you mentioned about, um, you know, the auto-regulation component. Like, this is, this is a conversation I have all the fucking time with athletes, regardless of their experience level. Like, I'll have this conversation with, like, world-level athletes, and they still, they still sometimes don't appreciate the RIR system, right? Where, where it's like, it's meant for auto-regulating, you know? So I'll, they'll, they'll go and they'll take a single at a two. And the single at a the single at a two RIR turns into a one rep max, and I'm like, bro, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you know, <laughs> it's a two RIR, and they're like, I know, I was just feeling good, and I'm like, yeah, but you just, now you messed up with your training. Yeah, exactly, right. Or or conversely, if they go in and they're supposed to hit a triple at a, at a three or something like that, and you know, they're like, oh well, last week I did this, so this week I'm trying to do more, and it's like, okay, but did you feel like you could do more? And they're like, no. And I'm like, so then why didn't you listen? They're like, well, I wanted to hit my RAR target. And I'm like, what is RAR? And they're like, well, it's this. And I'm like, exactly. This is not a linear progression. This is not a step progression. It's auto-regulatory. It's supposed to allow you to, you know, listen to the feedback and and adjust accordingly. Um, And I think especially if you're doing something like a water cut or a diet or all that stuff, like you're putting yourself into a compromised position intentionally you know, where your recovery might not be as good as it normally is, and you might not feel as good as you normally would, 
just because you're you're intentionally depleting glycogen, you're intentionally making these adjustments to your diet that aren't normal. Uh, they're not part of your normal training anyways. And so, you know, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that you might feel a little different and that your, your performance, I, I don't think that your performance would suffer really. That's not the right word, but you might feel a little off, you know, Yeah. you might not, oh, but you right. might as well. Right. So, yeah. That's something, Nami. So I, I can, I, I share that for, I share that that same experience with coaching combat sport athletes in the weight room, you know, especially when I'm, when I'm working with like a younger demographic, even if they aren't cutting weight, you know, let's just take the water weight cutting out of the equation for a second and talk about the ego driven, yeah, you know, fit, fit, you know, male fitness enthusiasts, not that there aren't, you know, females like this, but, you know, if we're, if we're speaking from experience, you know, I, I can speak from personal experience where so I can say I've, I've been, uh, you know, I've, I've been stubborn and have just wanted to grind it out in the weight room at time, you know, like, you know, especially during the very beginning of my journey, uh, you know, but grind it out for the sake of letting myself know that I can still do it, which, you know, like in, in retrospect makes absolutely no sense yeah. uh, physiologically, you know, when, when you actually, uh, when you think about the grand scheme of, of program design. And so uh, that's something with uh, regards to peaking, I, I don't think a lot of athletes understand. And I actually be curious to, to know like how you, like how you work on communicating with your athletes expectations going into the phase and then during so that they, they understand that, Hey, you, like you said before, you don't have to feel like you're beat to piss. Like you're not supposed to, <laughs> there are going to be some sessions where you finish feeling better than when you started. Right. And, and, you know, like, uh, so, so for, so for me, we're combat athletes and, you know, when I'm telling them, Hey, rate of force development in the weight room right now is, is our primary and focus. You know, we want max intent during some of these lifts, you know, they're going to be, it's going to be short and sweet. We're not necessarily, you know, we're, we're not doing smokers like, like, uh, so in, in the MMA community, this is, this is something that's still, that, that I'm still trying to help eradicate. And that's this idea that you have to be doing some sort of, some sort of smoker or finisher, you know, before, during, and after every single practice, and that we do strength and conditioning, it's basically the exact same thing, you know, uh, because that, that, that's something uh, we actually, uh, Mike and I actually touched on in our MMA, myth, uh, MMA myths series uh, for, for strength and conditioning and diet, and that was uh, th this idea that there are some athletes that think when I do, when I do weight training, right, I need to be mimicking exactly what I'm going to be doing for sport, and so they end up, you know, so, so they end up, you know, like especially with MMA, you know, where it's, it's basically, and shit and like, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's like, okay, so you're doing basically yeah. glycolytic training, grappling and takedowns, and you're getting a pump through the evening. But then prior to that, you're in the weight room, you know, basically doing the same, the, the exact same thing, you know, so I don't think people think energy system dependent, uh, as opposed to like, to like, like tool, uh, I, I guess that they could, they contextualize it differently than I'm trying to think exactly, exactly how to word it. Uh, the, the context with which they put it in is I need to, like, I need to do my sports in the weight room versus I need to train what can't be hit, what, ne what can't necessarily be hit in the sport room, in the weight room, so that I get the best yeah. of both worlds during the peaking process. No, you. Uh, so I, I didn't want to lose the thought because you had you, you had said something regarding concurrent training. I'd be curious to 
uh, hear, hear a bit more about that, but uh, it, 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 it flagged a thought or uh, it flagged a thought in my head uh, about a prior a question you asked prior. Uh, and that was, you know, like things you can, you, you're asking me, what would you suggest uh, a power lifter or strongman style athlete um, do to help with maintaining fitness during that week of peaking when they are depleted, you know, on carbohydrates and whatnot. And, and um, so this is a conversation I remember having. So Alex Viata was, uh, so he's, he's a, he's a coach that I followed for a lot of years and he has been, he, he's big on a rope, like, uh, making sure that powerlifters, uh, you know, and strength athletes in general are still finding time to get in their aerobic based training. Uh, you know, whether it's out, you know, like out of season and then obviously, uh, finding, finding ways to finagle and train it concurrently, um, you know, and so, so with the robot training, you, you, you have, you have the benefit of improving recoverability, not only in between training sessions, but even like during, like, like interest set recovery as well. And so uh, when you said, you said you train concurrently, what exactly, what, what were you highlighting or, or alluding to there? Yeah. So when it comes to, um, when it comes to concurrent training, basically what that means is we're training for multiple qualities simultaneously that could, you know, in the, in the context of, of strength athletes, that could be strength and hypertrophy. That could be strength and power. That could be strength and speed. That could be strength and endurance. Um, so there's a lot of different things that we might need to develop and how we're going to execute that is going to depend on the athlete and what they require. So for instance, if I have a very large athlete who has a very poor uh, level of fitness, you know, and their work capacity is pretty low. Well, I'm probably going to place a little bit more emphasis on uh, their their work capacity. So I might get them to get out and and just get some steps in. I might set a daily step target. Uh, I'm a big fan of steps, anyways, just because I think that people, not even just physically, but also psychologically, function better when they're moving and when they're a little bit more active. So um, I think that 10,000 steps is kind of a bare minimum, just to be healthy and and you know generally. Well, yeah, just generally healthy. So I like to set that for most of my athletes anyways. Um, some of my smaller athletes, some of the females that I coach, they love cardio. And so if if I tell them not to do cardio they're because they don't necessarily need it, they're probably still going to do it anyway. So in that instance, I'll have to pick a more traditional form of cardiovascular training that is less detrimental to their actual training. So that might look like... Um, you know, instead of running, because we have the strong eccentric and impact, uh, I might switch them to rowing or cycling, right? Something like that. Or I might get them to maybe, you know, do, do some other form that's not necessarily going to be as detrimental. Maybe if they play a sport recreational, I might have them just, you know, play that sport just for fun or something like that. Something that's not going to be super, super detrimental to their performance or their recovery. Um, so that's usually what I would try and do in, in those cases. But generally speaking, when I'm talking about concurrent training, what I really mean is within the actual program itself. So on that day, uh, let's, let's take a squat day, for instance, let's say someone is squatting and their primary barbell work or, you know, squat variation, that's the main focus. That's where we're developing the skill of the squat. Okay, so that's probably going to be under five repetitions. It usually is anyways, in most cases, because that's usually what we need to develop uh, to develop a, a significant stimulus for strength and, and have the skill of squatting be close enough to your 1RM for it to actually have a, a high uh, level of transference or dynamic correspondence. 
Now, for your back off work, for the assistance work, that might be a little bit higher reps. So I might, you know, have someone do sift like deadlifts or good mornings. And that, like, I've had athletes do uh, banded good mornings for like 15 reps. And, and in some cases, that's had a really, really great carryover to their deadlift and their squat, right? For other athletes, I have to have them doing heavier deadlifts, right? And then we we go one step further. So now we're, we're, we're two orders of magnitude or two standard deviations away from, from the primary work, right? Because we've got our main work, we've got our assistance work, and now we're going um, to, to, you know, the accessory exercises. And that's really where a lot of the, you know, concurrent type training comes into play as far as uh, from a program design standpoint. So I might have, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of things you can do there. Like if you're using internally or externally stabilized movements that can allow you to lift much, much higher volume because it's going to be less fatiguing if you have something that's externally stabilized, like a uh, leg extension or a leg press. So doing a leg press for higher repetitions, shortening your rest periods to, to force recovery while simultaneously constraining fatigue because you're not going to be able to lift as heavy if your if your recovery is insufficient, right? So so that's going to be something that you can utilize to work, use, sorry, to increase your work capacity is constraining rest periods. Um, oh, actually, that's one thing. I get all my athletes to time their, their rest periods. Um, if you don't time your rest periods, a lot of the times people can just waste their time in the gym and spend hours and hours and hours when they do not need to. So that's something I find to be really important. And also it helps improve their work capacity, uh, utilizing circuits or, or supersets. So for instance, um, I might have someone doing Bulgarian split squats, uh, mixed with, let's say a lat pull down or something like that. And then I don't know, maybe some core work, right? So they might do those back to back to back and then have a short rest period at the end, maybe 90 seconds or something like that. And then they do it again for, let's say two to three sets, hypothetically, right? So that is often enough to improve their aerobic capacity to the point where they're going to function very, very well for their primary training. So it doesn't need to be anything super special. It doesn't need to be this crazy circuit. It, it should still be specific and it should still have some sort of translation into their actual uh, competition movements. And then simultaneously, I'm also a really big fan of having their accessory work or yeah, having their accessory work also play a role in injury risk management, right? So for instance, um, utilizing, let's say a single leg uh, Romanian deadlift, but loading it contralaterally. Okay. So now we're going to have to develop um, lumbopelvic stability in while we're moving, while we're in a, a hinge pattern, right? So that can be very, very important for developing stability in the hips, in the squat, as well as in the deadlift, uh, utilizing a Bulgarian split squat, but maybe, you know, offloading it could be very effective at, uh, again, developing better pelvic stability, but then we can also load the, the split squat in a different way. We can either choose to load the hips more by changing how we're executing the variation, or we can load the quads more. We can choose to uh, have it supported so that we're just able to bang out a bunch of reps and, you know, potentially generate less fatigue, but really train the muscles, right? Um, or we can have it, you know, unsupported and contralaterally loaded or ipsilaterally loaded. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways to, to attack this. It just depends on what characteristics you want to develop. But at the same time, you know, I think that you can really improve your work capacity just by making some small adjustments to the actual training. And the actual training should still be specific to 
you know, what it is that you're trying to do in your sport. It doesn't need to be super far removed. You don't need to be doing these, you know, like burpees or anything like that, just to get your heart rate up. It, you can still improve your work capacity and, and have a conditioning component um, in, in your actual training and have it still be specific. Right. And, and oftentimes it doesn't need to be a ton either. Like we don't need to be doing five rounds of this stuff. Like sometimes even just two rounds or three rounds is, is more than enough, especially if you're doing it multiple times throughout the week. So I think there's a lot of different ways. These are just a couple of hypothetical examples off the top of my head, but hopefully that, that makes sense. Does, does that kind of answer your question? No, de definitely does. Definitely. Yeah. That's a uh, man. So speaking, so circling back to that, like sweating, sweating out your body weight, uh, you know, like, like, and I guess refocusing on the, the water weight cut portion of the, uh, of the podcast. Uh, so I had a, you know, so earlier I was, I was highlighting the importance of cutting water off rather drastically late into the cut, right. You know, so that final 24, 24 hours or so, as opposed to tapering off just because of the, the hormonal implications there. Um, so I don't know, like, but, but before I actually, dove into the physiology of water retention. Uh, I kind of happened upon this, uh, during one of my fights. And so this was, uh, this, this was in Abu Dhabi earlier this year. And then I have another, uh, another story from, uh, UCM when I was wrestling back in 2011, but I, I think the better example would be this more recent one where I was traveling overseas and there, the, so there was a time zone difference that I thought I accounted for well, well enough, but, you know, it turns out I didn't. Uh, and then not only that, there, there were a bunch of factors during, you know, during the three flights it took us to get, you know, from Missouri to Dallas, Texas, to London, to Dubai, and then finally the drive through customs, which took hours, you know, into Abu Dhabi, where uh, I was highly stressed. Um on top of that, nutrition wasn't optimal because we were, so I, I wasn't prepared for go, like be, being stuck at each international checkpoint as long as I actually was. Uh, so food, what, like food later on in the cut was a lot more sodium infused and uh, sparse. Actually, I wasn't able to eat, eat in uh, exactly the way I would have liked uh, going into going into the cut. So when I made it to the venue uh, and checked my weight a couple of days out. And, you know, you have you know, like benchmarks for where you should be ideally, you know, give or take a couple of pounds uh, just to make sure you're on track. And I was, you know, because of time zone differences and everything, I just, just highlighted, you know, I was, I was way overweight. I was, you know, upwards like seven pounds off, you know, seven, maybe I think even like 10, I was supposed to be in the mid one sixties and I was like low one seventies or something like that. So I had a, an initial moment where, I kind of freaked out and I was like, Oh my God. Okay. What, what the, what the heck am I going to do? You know, like I'm, I'm this late in, I'm basically exactly where I was during the initial water loading phase. You know, am I going to have to water load again? And, you know, so there, there's anxiety associated with that. Like, Oh, I'm gonna have to drink more fluids to get back into a fleshy mode, but I'm going to be heavier, but I don't want to, I don't want to overstress about those details and then make water retention worse as well. But even, even being as close to the fight that I was, I think I was like two, two days out. Uh, you know, I decided after, after a long walk with my teammate who listened to me, run, you know, I run through all the details of the weight cut three times, you know, on a 40 minute walk. Uh, you know, I finally landed on, okay, we need to increase, you know, like increase fluids again and, you know, go, 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 go through the water weight cut workout protocol, you know, I, you know, as such, and probably add an extra sauna session. Uh, and I ended up having the best, 
weight cuts and reconstitution that, that, you know, that, that I had ever had, like I ended up filling out more, um, follow, uh, following the way in that I had in the past. Uh, and so that, that was one of those, and, and the weight came off a lot easier during the final 12 hours than I thought it would bearing. I had basically jumped back up to nearly, you know, two or so gallons, uh, whereas I was used to, you know, in, in the past when I was, you know, making the mistake of tapering, you know, I would have been like half a gallon or maybe three quarters of a gallon. Uh, so, so I was, I nearly doubled my fluid intake and was still within a decent, you know, like, uh, poised to, to successfully make a weight cut. So that, that's something, uh, that, that's like a funny story I share. It was, it, was, it was a lot more funny being there and, and seeing me freak out the moment I stepped on the scale. And I was like, oh, maybe the scale's not accurate. I don't know. And my buddy stepped on. He's like, oh, I don't know, man. It looks pretty good to me. And so, uh, yeah, it was one of those times like through experience and uh, being validated, you know, be, be, being being validated through textbook, you know, like physiology uh, that, or, um, you know, that ba- ba- the, the physiological implications for hormone, uh, hormonal upregulation or downregulation with, with uh, like adjusting some of those variables uh, allow for more fluids deeper into their cut than, than what I originally believed. Yeah. It's super cool. Like that's probably one of my favorite things about coaching is when you look at some of these like mechanistic underpinnings and then you, you do them and then you're like, Oh, it happened exactly like that. That's fucking (laughs) crazy. You know? And like, I know that sounds stupid. You're like, we know this. And we did it and that happened. But to see it from like textbook panning out in, in real life scenarios, like it's, it's really freaking cool. You know, like someone, yeah. someone's like, oh, my, my hip hurts or my that hurts. And you're like, oh, okay, here, I want you to do this exercise. And they do that. And all of a sudden they're like, oh my God, I can squat below parallel and I don't have any pain. And you're like, yeah. You know, and, and they're so like, it's like, of course. This- yeah. And, and you're just like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's fucking crazy. And you're like, yeah, well, your, your nervous system's reorganizing itself a little bit. Right. And, and mm-hmm. like just even some of these weird concepts, it's, it's, yeah, we're really diverging from the topic, but that's fine. It's, it's super interesting, man. Um, yeah. So w- what are some of the, I guess, more common mistakes that people make? And then I guess I would like to know how far out as well you would start a cut. And obviously there's going to be some variability there, but maybe just offer some, some general guidelines for maybe the most common scenarios that you're, you're confronted with. Uh, so common scenario, number one, like off the bat, and we, we touched on this uh, twice, I think now is a fighter or strength athlete coming into camp or prep just way too out of shape P- period. Right. They, they, they don't have an aerobic base. Uh, they don't have a solid, you know, solid to make any PRs for the, the next meet or the fight. Uh, and so, so they, they're not even really set. They're not really, they're not set up for success going into, going into the, to, to the, to the water cut. They, they, they would just be better off sticking to an off season program for another eight weeks. And then having you know, like having the conversation about, uh, going into a going to a contest prep from there. So I, I would say that's mistake number one. It's just coming in too much body fat, not a good enough aerobic base, not a good enough strength base. Uh, and then for the combat athletes out there, 
uh, not a good enough skill base at all. Um, second one would be starting, starting a water weight cut too early or too late. All right. So because we kind of highlighted that, um, you know, hormones responsible for water and sodium retention fluctuate rather quickly, right? So that they, they, they change, uh, you know, in, in accordance to your fluid and, uh, basically to, to your food and fluid intake, um, starting really early on and it kind of makes, you know, like, like two, yeah. Um, I think Derek gave an example of this, but I even remember an athlete, uh, back in 2014, I was training with, I was an amateur at the time and he was a pro and he was talking about basically mm -hmm. dropping into ketosis, like two weeks out from the fight. And I, I remember like, I, I didn't even know a, nearly as much as I do now about water weight cutting, but uh, that, that, that at the time made no sense to me. So I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, you're two weeks out from a fight. Um, like you could still be getting really good training in this week. Uh, you know, like, like, like being, being carb depleted is not going to allow you to get the best out of your training sessions. And moreover, like I, I'm, I'm not even sure what you're accomplishing here. Like what, what, what do you think you're potentiating, you know, by, by being this depleted uh, that, that early on, you know, and then yeah, I'm and really skeptical of some of the research that I've seen on like the, the carb depletion followed by the overload. So I tend to be very skeptical of this research. Essentially, um, they, they've done some studies that have shown a potential positive benefit on early carb depletion followed by a rapid repletion uh, just before the competition. But essentially, you know, when we look at like substrate utilization, especially in, in the metabolic efficiency to process these different substrates, that takes time. And so uh, personally, I don't necessarily think it confers a, a major benefit. I would still have to see more research on it to really be convinced. But at this time, anyways, I'm just not really holding my breath for anything like that, uh, especially because athletes have been doing very, very well on a higher carbohydrate diet for a long period of time. Uh, and all the ketogenic diets that I've seen have seemed to, at best, come close to matching performance. Uh, but it most commonly just underperforming a carbohydrate diet. So like I said, I'm, I'm not holding my breath for it. No, no, you're, you're, I'm, I'm actually glad you brought that up because I didn't even realize that, that there was a research, uh, I guess, like early depletion followed by rapid repletion. And, and I just, I also don't know. I mean, so, so we're saying for running performance and I'm assuming this is long distance running um, as opposed to... Off the top of my head, I I can't remember. I think it might have been like maybe for soccer and or marathon runners and things like. I think it's more in that realm, like more yeah. for Olympic athletes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is that uh that's so when the conversation about the sport performance implications for uh, ketosis or ketogenic diets really took off. Uh, however many years that I got, I, I lose I lose track of. Uh, diet fad popularity because there's so there, yeah. there's so many I'm just I'm just numb to it now uh, but sorry I, I digress um, I, I I do remember them highlighting that there are possibly some there there if there are benefits they are mostly exclusive to your long distance like endurance type athletes as opposed to your higher intensity strength style athletes, which physiologically does make sense. But again, I, I can't, I can't tell sometimes if with these new, you know, like, the, like these new literature reviews, if 
someone's just trying to reinvent the wheel for the sake of yeah, well, that, yeah. even the endurance stuff has kind of been called into question um there, yeah. there's actually new research not new i guess it's been out for a couple of years now but um relatively new i guess that uh that has called some of that into question as well because at first it was like touted as oh it's better for endurance and then it was like oh it might be better for strength as well and then like oh it turns out it's definitely not better for strength and then it's like oh it turns out it's definitely not better for endurance either because yeah um, actually alan aragon did a great review um when he, he he did a presentation he talked about um race winning strategies because there's different legs of a race, right? And so in that final stretch, this is kind of one component of his, of his presentation to kind of paraphrase some of it. But um, in the, the final stretch, you actually aren't running anymore. Like you're, you're like doing a full-on sprint, right? So you actually need enough glycogen and carbohydrates in your system to, to allow you to have those final bursts of energy to, to finish the race, Right. Um, yeah. and, and to be at a certain pace at different stages of the race as well. And so they found that, uh, that, yeah, like, you know, the ketogenic type diets just are, just don't really perform as well as people want them to. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, uh, <laughs> um, and I, I, I won't take us further off course, but I, I guess a, a final point there regarding new literature, and this is something I'm sure you've talked about, especially like either on your podcast or, you know, with Mike or your other colleagues in person. And that's, uh, for, for, for viewers, this, this is really for viewers, especially if you're new to literature and I guess um, like scientific training. And that's, you know, w- when you see a new claim, you know, that, that, that that's hailing some, you know, like marvelous, uh, mar- marvelous result, you know, with this new quick trick, you know, I found it, it, it's often smart to, you know, maybe, you know, keep, keep it off to the side, you know, and be like, okay, like it, we'll, we'll keep this as like a yellow blinking light, but I'm going to keep going with what we know is tried and true for sure, especially if it's working. Right? There's, there's, there's definitely no point in reinventing the wheel. And we will watch and see if that yellow blinking light gravitates toward a green light, you know, or even if components of it kind of sprinkle down into our, you know, and, you know, to our green light and get the thumbs up. Okay. This is absolutely good. This is definitely beneficial. And it lines up with what we know about, you know, the physiology of adaptation for sport performance, you know, or if like many, uh, many new claims, it ends up just being a flat out red light, you know, it just, it just bonks, you know, um, you know, and, and that's, that's kind of what you just highlighted a second ago is you have a new claim, uh, you know, it, it takes off for a little bit and then they circle back around and determine that it's absolutely not beneficial in the way they originally thought. And that we, I say we, uh, that researchers, kind researchers and practitioners kind of had it right from the get-go um mm-hmm. that being said so circling back to common mistakes going in right so we, we were just talking about starting a, uh, a water weight cut protocol too early but then starting it too late also right so there you know i have a uh, this is especially prevalent in in the fight community where we have um even at the professional level, I have people dm me or come up to me in person and be like hey man you know i fight this weekend you know i gotta drop you know, like I got to drop 10 or 20 pounds, you know, what, what can I do to get the, you know, to shed this weight off? And I'm like, Oh, it's Friday. Like, <laughs> like ask me, too much. <laughs> yeah. you know, like ask me, you know, ask me at least six days ago, you know, but, but in, in all honesty, give me eight weeks to actually work with you. I have no idea what your training is look like. Um, I have no idea how you've been eating, you know, and at, at that point, you know, at that point, like, ah, oh, you know, I've just been kind of eating like junk, you know, or they say, you know, I've been eating clean, 
you know, which really, you know, in my experience means they have like Monday really clean. Yeah. Tuesday they yeah. cave and eat cake and you know, <laughs> Wednesday they eat clean again. Yeah, it's so, so funny because like so I, I actually used to box and, and compete in boxing and Muay Thai. Um, but I first started in grappling and jujitsu. And you'd always get people being like, like, what do I do if he has me in a rear naked choke? And it's like, don't get there. Like, don't <laughs> get there. Like, if if he's got you in a choke and you're like, how do I get his, you know, I, how do I get stop being strangled? It's like, dude, you're, it's too late. Like, yes, there are defenses, yeah. but you've you've missed about 80 steps for him to get on your back and be choking you to death, basically. Like for sure. It's too late, you know, like just bad questions, bad strategy, bad responsibility, bad you know, athlete management. It's just like, come on, man. Like one, yeah. one or two days, you want me to help you cut 20 pounds? Like, what are you doing? Like, no, nah, it's not. exactly. like, you're yeah. about to put me at like, like, Hey, it, it, not only is it, is it frustrating from an athlete responsibility and respect standpoint, but it's dangerous too. You know, I'm like, Super you don't dangerous. understand the yeah. severity, uh, you know, of, of risk you're, you're, you're asking me to impose upon you. And it's just not for me as a coach, it's not a responsible decision to even take that on. I'm just like, Hey, uh, in all honesty, see if you can get a catch weight, you know, or, you know, I, I know it'll suck, but you know, you're going to have to pull out and hopefully that's a lesson learned, you know, for, for athletes like that, where it's like, okay, you know, you need, you need to shift gears and instead of asking for help while you're in the choke, you know, which obviously there are things you can do, just like there are things you can do if you botch a weight cut later, you know, uh, you know, deep, deep into the process, but ideally you have all of your sets, you, know, you have all your ducks in a row, uh, prior to going. In. Um, but I, I think, I think those are the two biggest ones yeah. off the top of my head though. It's like starting too early or just starting flat out too late. And so generally like you would recommend, um, I, I think anyways, correct me if I'm wrong. Generally you recommend starting like almost a week out or something like that. That's when you kind of start your water. Oh, roughly like, like five, five or six days, five, yeah, five yeah, or six okay. days. Yeah. You have at least three days of, of solid loading. Uh, and then that gives you some, that, that gives you a good 12 to 36 hour window to make changes because there, there are, there is the individual difference component there as well. You know, where you have, like I said, you, you have different lifestyles and different responses to stress. Well, you know, you have like different tolerances and uh, different thresholds and tolerances to stress uh, across athletes. Um, and then, you know, did different, different training strategies, you know, like we're talking right now, we're talking about the difference between uh, an MMA athlete and a, and a power lifter, but, you know, even within the powerlifting or specifically the MMA, you know, the, the MMA situation, there are going to be differences across there too. So, uh, you know, that, that's where, that is where I would say the art portion comes in as well, but definitely having three solid days of loading going into it is, is, is what I recommend. Yeah. And one thing that I think is really important as well is like you said, you know, at, at some point you might just need to kind of throw in the towel. Cause like with powerlifting, it's not like MMA, you know, in MMA, you go in there and you're unprepared. If you're unfit, if your water cut fucks you up, like you're going to be getting kicked and kneed in the face. Like that's serious. There's serious consequences for being unprepared in powerlifting. It's like, ah, oh, you don't do as well as you thought you would. Okay. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, big deal. There's not really any consequences outside of like a bruised ego. And so like a lot of the times I'll just tell people like, you know, for the first, for the first couple of meets, like, don't worry about your fucking weight, you know, mm -hmm. just go in there, have fun, see if you even like it, you know, and, and 
enjoy it and that's it, you know, but don't, don't worry about something like, unless you're, you know, you're, you're set to win like nationals or worlds or break a record. Like it's not that big of a deal, you know? Yeah. And, and yeah. so unless something like that is on the line, in my opinion, it's just like, uh, who gives a shit, you know? Um, yeah. Because there's, there's just not the same level of consequences there is in like MMA or boxing or something like that. So, I mean, yeah, that's also something to kind of keep in mind too. Um, do you, I, I was kind of curious about this. Do you use any sort of like tech to monitor someone's status and whether or not they're kind of entering potentially like a, a dangerous zone? Like if, if they are at risk of like, you know, hypernatremia or something like that. Uh, no, no tech at this point, man. That's, uh, so this is, this is where I'm crossing my fingers that when an athlete, uh, inquires about weight cut coaching, uh, that they're already, that they're working with a physician because I, I like to collaborate with that physician. And, you know, if, if they're getting, whether they're getting blood work, uh, blood work done or not, or even if, if we can at least have like a checklist of common, common symptoms associated with extreme dehydration, you know, especially if you're doing a 24 hour weight cut where you're like beyond, beyond seven to 10% of your body weight and dehydration is, you know, where, where the dangerous things start to happen, uh, you know, or early on with the, with the water loading process, you have those hyponatremia um, risk as well. If you can, if we can check off some of this list, like, okay, you know, do you, do you have headaches, you know, uh, headaches right now, or, you know, dizziness, you know, like, uh, memory or, you know, coordination issues or things like that. Um, we, we, we can, we can troubleshoot for solutions before things go awry. Uh, and so that, that's, that, that is where the communication and auto-regulation component really comes into play, you know, like as opposed to a normal client where I'm checking, you know, you check in, three times weekly, let's say, just to ask, okay, how's weight going? You know, how's life going? Uh, you know, th this is, this is very serious where you're, you're on the athlete and, and ideally, you know, especially if you're doing it remotely, you're making them feel like you are with them every step of the way and that you are part of their team so that you can collaborate with health specialists on the spot. Yeah, no, I think that's super important as well, because like you said, there's just so many variables that can impact the effectiveness of the strategy. It could be a perfect strategy, but then something happens and they just, like travel, for instance, right? Like I, I definitely know that if I'm flying, I get super dehydrated. I don't know what it is, if it's the elevation, maybe it's just purely psychological, but I get headaches, I get dehydrated, I don't feel like eating anything, I get kind of like queasy, even just at the thought of eating anything. But then at the same time, like, I have to eat or else I feel worse. So it's like, it, it's, it's, it's kind of really weird. And so like, there's all sorts of things that can kind of like, fuck you up. And if you don't necessarily have that, in, in place for that communication. There's no possibility to like pivot. There's, and even, yeah, like you mentioned about the headaches and stuff like that. You know, if you don't know about these things, if you don't know what to look for and all of a sudden the stuff starts happening, you, you can kind of catastrophize and be like, oh my God, maybe I'm getting sick. Maybe I'm overtrained. Maybe something bad is happening. You're like, whoa, 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 no, we already talked about this. You're good. This was expected. All that means we need to make this change and then you're good to go. You know, so it can kind of help help manage a lot of those variables, including the the, the stress response or whatever you know might might come from it. So, no, I, I think that's great. Um, so, you know, we for the most part we kind of covered everything that I wanted to to touch on. Was there anything else that maybe we didn't um, discuss that you think is pertinent to to share with some of the listeners? Um, 
I, I think we, I mean, I, I think you got about as much out of me regarding water weight cutting that, that, that you're going to get for now, at least uh, something. And I'm, I'm quoting uh, Derek again on this one, uh, Derek Wilcox, when you're approaching a water weight cut, this, this is for the listeners, really. Uh, you, so there's, there's a term in martial arts called kazushi. Or, you know, you, you off balance each other, right? So it, it's big in judo, but with grappling, uh, and, and it's even kind of present in, in striking. It's this idea that you you push and pull, right, to get a response out of your opponent, right? You push a little bit, and then you you observe and say, okay, is my opponent pushing back, or are they, you know, or are they pulling away, uh, and, and, and vice versa. And that's that that's in essence how the water weight cut process will work. And, and in all honesty. Since we're principles focused coaches, uh, you know, I guess I'm speaking back to you, Daniel. Uh, this this is a principle that's present in all of training and, and, and dieting. Period. Right? You you push in one direction, whether that's with a training stimulus, uh, you know, or with a you know a caloric load, uh, you know, or in this case, a you know a water load, uh, and and then and then you pull, and then based on your knowledge of the physiology of the body, you observe and see how it responds and what are your next best steps so that you can, so that, so that the timing component is hit perfectly to ensure again, safety, but then the best peak and water cut so that you can reconstitute and show up for competition ready to go. And so, so if, if you approach all things with that Kazushi principle, you're in control of the process, right? The more, the, the more educated you are, uh, on how the body works. And, and I would even say the mind regarding stress, like we touched on earlier, uh, the more you can command uh, the direction in which your body goes and then manipulate things accordingly. No, 100%. I think, I think that's a great point to kind of like end things on here as well. Um, so where can people find you? So right now, the best spot is going to be Will Starks MMA on Instagram. Awesome. It was, it was a great chat, man. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me.